Today's episode is brought to us by BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. It's exactly what you would write in the sand if you were stuck on an island, right? H-E-L-P, help. And then you see the helicopter go by, you start waving. BetterHelp is that helicopter. They are the ones that will save you. They will pick you up. Is there something interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals? I know for me, it's been a sense of feeling inadequate or uh, afraid of expressing my needs. Because like, if I express my needs and they say no and they find out what I really want, they're going to leave and I'll be abandoned and I have to start all over again. And, and also just comparing myself to other people. Every time I compare, I get on social media and I see the, the amazing life that other people are living, it just makes me want to just curl up and stop doing everything that I'm doing. But BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can start communicating in under 48 hours. Now, I understand when you are in uh, despair and, and you are spiraling, you just feel like the last thing I want to do was talk to anybody, but it's the best thing to do. When, when I was in trouble, when I couldn't see my way through the, the, the thickness, through the darkness, it was talking to someone, especially a professional therapist that guided me through. I still have a therapist. I have not only my own therapist, but I have a couple's therapist. So me and my girlfriend have a therapist. Like therapy, talking to someone is so beneficial, but it doesn't feel like it when you're in the midst of it. Now, I want you to remember that is not a crisis line. Better help is not self-help. It is professional counseling done securely online. BetterHelp is not the right solution for you if you have thoughts of hurting yourself or others. There is a broad range of expertise available, which may not be locally available in many areas. The service is available for clients worldwide. You can log into your account anytime and send a message to your counselor. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses, plus you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. So you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room with, as with traditional therapy. You could kick back at the crib at your house in Sukasa and get your therapy. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they can make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling. And here's the kicker, ladies and gents. Financial aid is available. That's right. But you, ain't, you don't have to go to college. College ain't the only one doling out financial aid. BetterHelp has financial aid because BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. Visit their website and read their testimonials that are posted daily, right? Check them out. Visit BetterHelp.com forward slash Leo. That's right. I got a slash before the name. Go to BetterHelp.com forward slash Leo. That's better H-E-L-P and join the over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. Special offer. Here's a special offer. Check this out. Right, this, just, this just came in just now. Special offer for my Before You Kill Yourself listeners. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com forward slash Leo. That's right. Just for tuning in, just for being a, a friend, uh, an ally, uh, just somebody who I could just, who I enjoy spending my time with, 10% off your first month if you go to betterhelp.com forward slash 
Leo. Let's go. Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. I am Leo Flowers. Today's guest is Lynn Cunningham. She is the producer of a new documentary called Medicating Normal. It's an in-depth documentary about the overuse and harmful impact of commonly prescribed psychiatric drugs, including antidepressants, anti-anxiety medications, mood stabilizers, and sleeping pills. Welcome to the podcast, Lynn Cunningham. Hi, Leo. Thank you for having me. I'm the co-director, co-producer. There, it was a great team of people who made the film, so I don't want to take sole credit. Don't, don't, don't be modest. You did all of it. I, I know. You cooked, <laughs> you cleaned, you, you filmed it, you, you created film. You, you're the, the pioneer in all this, Lynn Cunningham. Yeah, well, I did a lot of cooking and cleaning, that's for sure. I, I appreciate you being here, and uh, and I really appreciate this topic because the number of people who are medicate here's what pains me. Here's why this is a pain point: when kids are being over medicated, um, that is God. It breaks my heart. I'm like, does the kid have ADHD and need pills, or is your classroom boring and kids just aren't made to sit? for an hour or, you know, eight hours or whatever, you know, kids are, we're all meant to move really. And oh, uh, absolutely. <laughs> you, yeah. You look pretty athletic yourself. Lynn, do you, do you work out? What's your, what's your movement I, modality? Are you, you a know what? class? Yeah, Leo, I try to work out every day. And if I don't, I really feel, I feel sluggish. I feel down. I feel just, I don't know. It's it. And it's not just um, stretching and yoga type workout I really feel if I don't get sweating in which I think detoxifies us um I really feel it the next day well I mean almost like a hangover if I don't so I I believe in exercise I don't have as much time as I want to do more of it but at least 45 minutes of sweating every day absolutely you know I some days where I don't feel like working out yesterday I did an infrared sauna and I gotta tell you I sat in that baby for an hour and I felt buoyant i was just floating up in cloud nine have you tried that no no i want to people have said that's wonderful so yeah i'm 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 hoping to do that well lynn we, we you know we talked about listen one in five americans take prescribed psychiatric medications daily while these medications can provide effective short-term relief as experts estimate about 30 to 35 percent of regular users experience harm and or made worse by the drugs. Lynn, is this <clears throat> coming from a personal story? Like, did you, were you medicated as a child? Give us a little background on you and why this is personal to you. This is, the film became personal because it started out um, as a very personal story within our family. And although I've never been medicated, a very, very dear family member has been. And started medication after a, a, a high functioning um, elite college. She was a super athlete, super scholar um, at the top of her class at Harvard. I mean, really, really exceptional um, um, person and thinker. And um, in her early twenties, she, she um, sort of started to unravel. And it was, we, she, she got a series of, of diagnoses that um, back then, you have to remember, back then was in the, the 90s. And um, 
you know, all these psychiatric drugs were just emerging, you know, in particular Prozac in the late 80s. And, you know, it was the new miracle cure. And the way that, you know, we, our family is very supportive and the way we consulted all the best psychiatrists out there about, you know, what was happening to her. And um, it was described as a chemical imbalance and that it would, it could be managed with medication. Um, it, it might mean lifetime medication and, um, but that it would be okay. And um, we did not question this. We just didn't question it. And we, she saw, you know, all the very, very top doctors um, in New York and up and down the East Coast. Um, and she was put on meds and, you know, one medication led to two. And by the time I started to research for the film, the, that one or two medications had turned into 10. And I just, it did not make sense to me that this high performing, really intelligent person was on 10 medications. She could not hold down a job. She was collecting disability and calling me up every day, Lenny, is it going to be okay? Is, it, is everything going to be okay? And at this point, we were all uh, supporting her. Everyone was chipping in. Um, uh, the, her parents had died and she had inherited the little house they lived in. So she was in much better financial situation than many, many people. Um, she was being supportive. And I thought she was calling me saying, am I, are you going to keep supporting me? Am I going to be okay through this? I thought it was a very um, concerned about her security until, it, I don't know when it was, but I realized she's not talking about her security. She's talking about, am I going to become the functioning, uh, productive member of society that I thought I was before all this happened to me? You know, am I going to become the great writer that I wanted to be? And I realized you know, she's on these 10 meds. She was dysfunctional, like a zombie. And yet she has, has this incredible brain. And um, then, then that got me into researching and looking into like, what are these meds actually supposed to be doing? Um, what is her diagnosis? Why do these drugs also, are they used for other diagnoses? It just, none of it made sense. So that's really what led into the research. What, what was her original diagnosis? Well, it started out as, I think, a depression, and then it morphed very quickly because it had psych she had psychotic elements to it. It morphed very quickly into, um, well, schizophrenia, variations of it. But um, yeah, so now it's, a, it's, it's schizophrenia. And, um, but people along the way, she did experience some trauma in childhood. People along the way have said, well, PTSD, They've said bipolar, you know, every it's different with every doctor that she consults with. Um, and that's another confusing thing to me. It just, depending on who you see, you can walk out with a different diagnosis and all the symptoms overlap. And yet these are supposed to be discrete mental illnesses that just, it doesn't make sense if you go a little bit under the surface. Um, I know something is wrong. I mean, we know that, that, that she needs help and support and love. Um, so, but I'm, I'm not sure that our family did the right thing by allowing her to become put on 10 meds. Yeah. You, you know, these doctors are, are, they're trained to, you know, follow protocol and, mm -hmm. you know, if protocol says, you know, if they show this, give them this pill, then that's what they have to do. Because at the end of the day, a lot of doctors are, and this is nothing against doctors. This is a, this is, this, 
this is a system issue, right? It's just the way the system is set up um, to where doctors are basically operating in a way where they don't get sued, right? And 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 it's unfortunate because we're we're losing the creativity of the doctors. We're losing the um, the intuition of the doctors and the personalizing of uh, of the treatment modality. You know, there are, I had a friend of mine experience the same thing, smart, bright, young kid. We grew up together from the age of nine. And then at 18, he started hearing and seeing things. And then by 21, he was in a, a psychiatric mm-hmm. hospital, uh, medicated and bloated and, and heavy and things like that. But from my experience, what I found is, uh, people who have these psychotic breaks, you know, if talking about love and support, when we take the time to see and hear what they see and hear, we, we see a dissipation of the symptoms. Um, I, you know, I give an example. I was at dinner with some friends and we we're sitting outside on a balcony and this guy without a home, I don't like to say homeless person, guy without a home, uh, mm-hmm. you know, just kept staring at us and then yelling back what we were saying. So like, if we were like, yeah, we just got back from Tuscany. He'd be like, yeah, we just got back from Tuscany. And so we tried yeah. to think where we tried to ignore him. And then finally I looked at him and I said, I see you. And he kind of looked at me like, what? And I was like, I see you. Oh yeah. And then he goes, thank you. And then he just start walking off. Yeah. And a lot I- of, a lot of these psychotic episodes are like a way to be seen. I mean, you talked about her sexual abuse in her, um, you know, in her childhood and that caused a break and that probably hasn't been, um, you know, looked at um, or, you know, maybe she didn't get the support she needed at that time. But yeah, there's so, there's so many things outside of medication that can help. You're absolutely right. And um, it's, the being seen, it's the being heard. And, and it makes me think of in the course of the research of the film, there are these, these unbelievable groups that are cropping up around the world called um, hearing voices groups. And I had the privilege um, of, of going to one up near Columbia in New York uh, several years ago. It was only about six or eight people, but and they're generally not open to the public at all and because they want to create an environment of trust and so it was a real privilege that we were there and they were meeting to sort of tell us as filmmakers and researchers what they're all about and it was a lot like that it was listening to each other's stories understanding that these voices guess what are actually real inside their head that for the first time they're they're not being told oh oh you don't have a voice oh they're saying yeah you do you do have a voice for whatever biological or trauma or whatever, you might have a voice, but learn to live with it. Let's talk to each other about that. And I just think that is the way to go rather than making these people feel weird or diseased. It's just accepting them and listening. And I think you're absolutely right. The fact that you did that and said that to that guy affirmed his existence. Yeah, you know, uh, Winston Churchill had struggled with depression, as did Abraham Lincoln. And Winston Churchill would call his depression the black dog. You know, he was like, hey, what's up, black dog? I see you. I figured you'd show up again. And he made friends with it. And a lot of therapy nowadays is leaning in this direction of instead of trying to 
you know, get rid of our anxiety, get rid of our depression, get rid of the voices to make friends with it, to, to let it in, to talk to it, to ask, okay, you know, what are you trying to tell me? Because a lot of these voices and these, you know, disassociations are coping mechanisms when we don't feel like we have the social support that, that we need. Uh, um, And I'm sure that you found that in some way uh, through your research. Absolutely. Um, All of the, the, they're all coping mechanisms. And um, I think if you, I think what's happened in society and is that we have medicalized something that um, is quite important to us. It's quite important that, that depression comes along because I mean, I don't mean to take away from the severity of it because I know that there is huge suffering and we don't want that, but I just think that there is value in anxiety. I've heard about anxiety talked about. I know that Dave Cope, who's one of the subjects in our film, uh, talks about the flip side of his anxiety. Yes, it, it, it at times becomes debilitating and a pain, but it also made him a great student when he was younger. He would be anxious about that paper, whereas many students would be like, ah, I'll put the paper off for two weeks. He was anxious. He got it done. He did, he did the work required to get that paper done. And he got an A and he excelled in many ways, he admits, because of his anxiety. Um, but nowadays, you know, oh, someone's anxious, you've got to medicate them and and deal with it that way. And I just think we're doing ourselves a disservice. Yeah, it's almost a superpower, right? It we it's like um our, our brains are over stimulated or uh, stimulated is not the word, but it, it's it's it's, it's, I guess, stimulated in, in some direction where, yeah, it's like we, we worry a little more than the average person about the future. And so how do we channel that? Do we plan? Do we put a system in place to deal with it? Or do we try to like numb it with food, drugs, sex, and alcohol, uh, and thereby making the future <laughs> 10 times uh, worse? And, you know, I, I'm guilty of, of, of all the above there. Um, and I don't feel, I feel like doctors don't, especially psychiatric doctors, they don't have the time to really teach us that because those types of skills take time. You know, even a a, a therapist, um, you know, there's some great therapists out there and I actually have a great therapist myself. Um, they, they report that a lot of patients, they come and they feel better after a few sessions and they stop coming, not realizing that it takes so long to instill new habits and really learn how to talk to and cope with, um, you know, our black dogs or in, in sugar addiction, they call it the red dog. (laughs) I love that. I love that. Um, yeah, it takes time, time, time. And yeah, I, um, that's the, in a way in the making of the film, there's also the whole, the whole, disease-centered model of looking at mental health, and there is the drug-centered. And um, a great UK researcher, um, two research, three researchers have just come up with this unbelievable study um, uh, in the UK. It's all over the news outlets in the UK, less so here. Um, her name is Joanna Moncrief, and um, the, another researcher is Mark Horowitz. And what they've done, essentially, is it's an umbrella study that has sort of debunked the 
chemical imbalance theory of mental illness. And um, people will say, oh, that was debunked years ago, which in fact it was, but it's never been out in the news that these are, these are, has been a rationale for medicating mental illness because, but there is no, they have proven there is absolutely no scientific trial or uh, finding that links a chemical imbalance to a condition that manifests as depression or mania or anything. There's no difference in the, in that. So that's been debunked. And what she, if you look into Joanna Moncrief's work, it's really interesting. She starts talking about, if you look at drugs and, and, and the drugs do have an impact, they, they do. Um, uh, someone who they, they sedate, they, they, energize, they do all those things and they do do it. And if you look at them as like, okay, I need something to help me right now from point A to point B, great. That is the drug-centered approach. That drug can do that and does do it for many people. But the disease-centered approach, which says, I have a chemical imbalance that's some genetic disorder that I'm born with and I'm going to live with forever. Um, that's what where she that's where that's what she does not agree with and that's where i think our medication heavy society has has stemmed from that i'm sure you have talked about this but um yeah absolutely i mean i you know what comes to mind is autism right where <clears throat> they're on uh as we say a spectrum and we're not medicating people with autism we're finding ways to work with the autism and a lot of people who have it have gone on to be, you know, doctors and, and lawyers and um, and become very successful when they figured out how to channel their level of uh, uh, autism. And, you know, the chemical imbalance, there, there might be, I know Robert Sapolsky wrote a book called uh, Behave, and he talks about the five levels of behavior. Like there, there's five things that contribute to how we behave. One is chemical, one is hormonal, one is genetic one is environmental and then one is evolutionary so when we look at somebody with schizophrenia or depression we have to be looking at all five of those things and in the case of your friend grief has a profound impact um yeah. on our our emotional state and our psychological state did did her parents did she lose both parents at the same time or were they years uh, apart no, no about 10 years apart but a very very sad her mom got cancer right when she was starting to it was a very sad loss and traumatic for the whole family and uh yeah so um yeah grief was a big part of it big part of it because you know we know in, in suicidal in suicidality the two things that uh tether us here are our connection to people right and so to lose both your parents that uh, she was very close to that. That's painful. That's physically painful. Um, and probably to a, an extent where, um, you know, we know that part of grief is denial to where she was like, I can't believe my parents who were probably so strong and spry and smart as, you know, she was, couldn't believe that, that they could uh, pass away at the time that they did. Um, and then we also know that feeling like a burden and, I, you know, it sounds like financially she's set up, but maybe on some level she feels like a, a burden to society. I, I don't know to the extent of um, uh, her story, but. Oh, she's so isolated. 
yeah, so isolated and was part of a really vibrant intellectual community. And all of that has gone away for her. And, um, you know, she has us and her immediate family, but it is really isolating and it is for people everywhere. And that guy that you, you talk to who you affirmed, I mean, he's isolated. It's just isolation and the lack of human connection. And I think also, Leo, the lack of feeling like you're, you're a functioning member of society, you know, that's really isolating in and of itself. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, that's so true. It's like, you know, because she has an idea in her head of, of her and in, in, in an experience of what uh, her performance and her value is to society and anything less than that has to be painful and, and probably, like you said, feels like a burden to society. She can't function at the, the level that she once was. You know, it's almost like uh, I think about A Beautiful Mind with Russell Crowe. I don't mm -hmm. know who the, who the real guy was. But um, but I also wonder if there is because of the hallucinations and and psychotic breaks, if you know, there's another path meant for her that yeah. she wasn't aware of. You know, because a lot of times, you know, as we're growing up, we're we're going down a path, and we think this is the direction we should be going, but there might be a part of us on a subconscious level that is like. No, this is not this is not aligned with who we really are. And sometimes a psychotic break is that thing to kind of like maybe wake us up and say, oh, that's not even a life I, I wanted to live. Yeah. It's oh, life yeah. that I work for. Yeah. And and think about that. If you're in a bad relationship, a toxic relationship, all of that, that what what are you not supposed to be depressed when you're in that? All of these are human signs or warning flags and um i just think we need to listen to them but i agree yeah the the whole isolation thing is so massive you know because we're, we're talking about one how the pharmaceutical companies are you know they spend billions of dollars uh promoting these psychiatric drugs and the more drugs that we're taking the more isolating we become because we become dependent on the drugs instead of people, right? So we replaced people with pharmaceuticals, mm -hmm. which is unfortunate because we know that a hug can release oxytocin. We know that a laugh can release serotonin and mm -hmm. dopamine. We know that accomplishing things releases drugs. So just in our behaviors, in our social interactions, we can get that dopamine, that oxytocin, that serotonin, and those endorphins that these pills are, are putting into our bodies. And I'm not anti-pill. I just want to say that. I know that there are people out there who have friends who take it and they swear by it and they're, and they're functioning well. I, I'm just um, feeling like, and, and tell me if this is your perspective, Lynn, that we're over-medicating people and we've, we've gone too far um, in, in that direction of, of pills and potions and, you know, pharmaceuticals. Yeah, I definitely think I, that's a really important thing to say, though. When in the making of this film, people will say, well, well, you're, you're biased, you're anti-medication. We say the same thing. We are not anti-medication. What we really believe the film is more about is 
showing the, the dark side of medication, showing the pitfalls, showing the harm that is not discussed in, in really mainstream medicine today. And very few people talk about it. The med schools don't teach it. Um, it, it it's, it's the side effects that can occur when these meds are taken long-term. Now, if you're on a med and it has helped you function and you're happy, that is, that's not at all, that is great. So, um, and they, they, they should be around for people who need them. Um, but it's just, it, we need more information and awareness um, and something called informed consent, real informed consent about the side effects. And the, these side effects are huge and nobody talks about them. Doctors are not having those important conversations because they don't have enough time in, in one single meeting. Um, but you know everything from suicidality or sexual dysfunction, or um, if you're taking a stimulant, the sleeplessness that might occur at night. I mean, they go on and on and on. So the side effects are then treated with more drugs generally, and then you're on another bunch of drugs, and then you're in a in a phase called polypharmacy, which is you know taking multiple meds, and you get to my family member who was who then got up to ten meds simply because doctors were adding drugs to to sat, to deal with the side effects from the first drug. So um, the over medic over medicating occurs because people don't understand that the side effects are then medicated. So if you're one person and you're really doing well on a drug and and you you don't have the side effects, that is that's wonderful. Yeah, I was watching Irma Vet for this uh, show on HBO, and I'm not no spoilers here, but there was a scene where uh, they they in a hotel and, and they're walking out, and and the, one friend turns to the other, is like, "Oh, you look like trash," and the friend said, "Yeah, I couldn't sleep, so I took some pills, and then I couldn't wake up, so I took some more pills." <laughs> and this is like, yeah, once you start taking one pill. Uh, you, you can guarantee you'll be up to three pills in, in a matter of, you know, a week or even a night, you know, just one to, to deal with the other. Yeah. And nobody, these trials that occur, um, no, they're not, they're not trials that, that test the efficacy and safety of any one drug in a polypharmacy setting. They are trials. So nobody knows what the real interactions between these drugs are. And they're very variable because if you took Prozac and I took Prozac, you would respond differently from me because we have different metabolisms and um, our ability to get the drug out of our body. It's all different from every person. So um, it's a real uh, uh, Russian roulette going on a number of different drugs because you, you really, and the doctor doesn't know. So um, I, I don't know whether you saw the film, Leo, but Ivan, who is, a, <clears throat> Ivan runs a pharmacy on the Upper West Side, very patient-centered pharmacy. He knows his neighborhood. It's in the upper 90s of, on uh, Columbus Avenue. And um, people come into Ivan and he tells them, look, this is a powerful medicine. Keep a journal, write down what it is you're feeling on what day and what, and what hour and how much food you had that day. And then when you go back to your psychiatrist or doctor, you have a journal, you have some information written um, down that will give, gives accuracy back to the doctor. So they, you know, how can a doctor really know how to help you if you don't know and don't report exactly how you're responding to a given drug? So um, 
you know, and Ivan really believes in listening to his, um, his consumers, his clients who come in. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It, even with food, I find that I have to do that because, um, you know, when people are on these different diets and, you know, they go keto or paleo or whatever, you know, food releases chemicals in our, in our body. And so it's not enough just to step on a scale and see how much we weigh. We also have to make note of how does uh, what I just ate for dinner made me feel? Do I feel bloated? Do I feel heavy? Is it causing a sleep disturbance? Because we know sugar, sugar is so detrimental. It causes inflammation in the body. Uh, it can cause sleep disturbances, spiking our blood sugar, things like that. So, you know, keeping a food journal, medication journal. I have asthma. The first medication they gave me, uh, it gave me suicidal ideations. I mean, like, I already have them. But this was, like, at a 10. And I was like, I ain't that suicidal. <laughs> and I called him. I was like, yo, this, this pill has me wanting to jump off a bridge. And he was like, yeah, we should probably take you off of that. Um, but <laughs> what, what was that? Do you remember the name? Oh, of that? you know what? I, you think I would have written it down. I, I know I have it in my, um, in my history, but I don't know it off the top of my head, no. but, uh, but they, but they told me, they did tell me it could cause that. Uh, it doesn't cause it in everybody, but like you said, our metabolisms are different. Our blood types are different. And so different medications have a different uh, effect on all of us. I took two Benadryl one day because I had a, um, uh, an allergic reaction. I had an allergic reaction to a blood pressure uh, medication. It was my first time. The doctor was like, well, let's try this. That's what you have to listen out for. When they say try, let's try this. And I had an allergic reaction, almost died. Like my throat was closing up and I had to call the ambulance and I took two uh, ibuprofen. Um, it was like, an, and, um, and it knocked me out for like 10 hours because I never take that kind of stuff. But, <laughs> but it's insane because I know people who take Benadryl all the time to help them sleep or some type of melatonin. But so my, uh, and so I, I say that to say, if you are starting a new medication, right, make sure you take it in front of someone in case you have a reaction to it. There is a reason why when we got the COVID shots, they told you to stay at the, you know, at the place you got the shot for 15 minutes to make sure you didn't have a reaction. We should be doing that with all uh, medications or pills that we've never taken for the first time because you just don't know what's in there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and keep that journal um, so that you have information that 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 your doctor will is if that your doctor sees you reading notes that you have read and dated, that is a very powerful uh, tool for both of you. So I think that that um, that's a that's a really good piece of advice. Yeah. You know, and you brought up sleep because a lot of times people go into these psychotic breaks <coughs> or struggle with depression and um, sleep is so foundational to our mental health and not enough doctors really ask about, do you snore? Do you have sleep apnea? Sleep apnea gets misdiagnosed as ADHD and uh, OCD and anxiety and depression. We know that you know, it's so hard to, to lose weight, to stay focused 
if uh, you know, there's periods of the night where you're not getting into a deep REM cycle ever. We know it takes years off your life, uh, that kind of thing. It causes all types of emotional and mood disturbances. Anybody I know with bipolar or manic depression, they, they talk about how, you know, valuable sleep is uh, to them uh, being stabilized. And so in college, you know, you said she went to Harvard. I mean, it's so normal to stay up late, right, and study. And then people are taking, uh, uh, I forget, there's another documentary about, how, you know, higher performers take like uh, um, Adderall to yeah. stay awake. All the and stimulants. They all the stimulants. They had no idea how it can trigger uh, an episode. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I feel, I feel um, very, very blessed that I, any depression or feeling of overwhelm or anxiety or, and, and I think these are just human, human, maybe in my case, not, not, not debilitating, but really can make a day bad. If I have a good night's sleep, the next morning, it all goes away or that problem can be solved. But if I don't have a good night's sleep, it compounds it. And I'm just one person. So I think you're absolutely right. The apnea, all of that, and the mouth, I'm there, the nose breathing versus the mouth breathing is a really important thing. Um, and I know I'm lucky I breathe through my nose. Um, so really important, all of that. But I, um, I wanted to bring up. Um, to Leo, that one, one big thing in the psychiatric world is um, the import is is how these drugs can cause physical dependency. And in our film, all but one of our subjects really struggled with getting off the drugs. You know, they all more or less came to the point where they thought, "Okay, we're I'm going to get off this now," or "Something's not right. I don't feel right. I'm going to get off." And the getting off is not, again, it's not taught, it's maybe skimmed over in medical school, but the, the, the range of uh, tapering instruction that we gathered during the research of our film was, was mind boggling. Um, it was like some doctors said, oh, a third, just take a third off and then a third off and a third off. Some doctors would say, oh, you're fine. Just skip one every other day, you'll be fine. No, there's no consistent um, advice about uh, tapering. And um, um, just last night, we, we've invited a, uh, a wonderful guy. I wish he could be on your podcast and I, would, uh, I will send you his information, but he has just gotten his PhD in, at the University of Copenhagen and his study was on withdrawal and tapering. And um, he has a PhD in psychiatry and he's a clinical psychologist and he's young and um, very, very informed about effective um, tapering, which is so you have to go so slowly and it has to be hyper hyperbolic, which means you can't just drop the same amount each time you drop a percentage of what you the existing dose is. So. Um, uh, our film goes into the pitfalls of withdrawal, the agony that some of um, our subjects endured during that phase. And I think that is really important for people to understand before they go on a drug. Wow, this might happen to me. 
Yeah, it's so easy to get on, so hard to get off. It's it's almost like uh, you know, eating donuts. It's like once I have one, I can't I can't stop there. I gotta have like 20 donuts right there. It's it's hard to get off the ride. And that's one of the things that you're right. Nobody talks about is how do you get off this ride? Because we also know that um circadian rhythms change with the seasons. And yeah. so if you are heavily medicated and then you are, um, you know, trying a new med or getting off your meds when the seasons change, right, i.e. more light or less light, that can throw off the, the algorithm of, of your tapering. So all these different things have to be taken into consideration. That's why, like, there's a, a spike in suicides in the springtime because there's more light, more energy. And then people are trying to get off their meds, but um, they uh, but it puts them into a state of agitation, so they have more energy, but they don't quite have the coping skills to to deal with uh, to channel the more energy that they have. And so, um, you know, and it's just unfortunate that so many doctors don't. You know, it's like surfers. Surfers look at the the patterns of the weather and and when to go out there into the surf. But doctors don't really consider circadian rhythms and changes in temperature and in daylight and how that can affect the impact that the um, that tapering off meds can have on a person or, you know, transitioning from one med to the other. So so many things have to be um, in, incorporated for this to happen. Uh, yeah, and where do, where do we even have a school that offers all that like a medical school? Um, I mean, I know there's some great integrative programs around the country, but wow, that I didn't even know that about their circadian rhythms in the sunlight. That's incredible. Yeah, it, it, it's massive, especially so, you know, if you throw in your transitioning meds, right, uh, whether you're tapering or getting off or whatever, and then also um, we have, uh, you know, springtime is popping in. So the other, other uh, we're talking about compound effects. So with springtime, you have more light, which gives us more energy, which if we don't have somewhere to channel, it becomes agitation, right? Um, and then with springtime also comes allergies, which can um, uh, spark inflammation. So you're transitioning off drugs. You're already more agitated. And now you're a bit more inflamed than typical if you have like a pollen or some type of environmental uh, allergic reaction. Um, and, and so people end up ending their lives. You know, it's just, it's too much that can happen. And then, oh, and then that also throws off your sleep cycle. So now you're sleeping less because you have more sunlight giving you more energy, which can, you know, put somebody into a manic state. So all these things happen. And, you know, we just go, uh, you know, slowly taper and, uh, you know, it, be, it has some disastrous effects on people. Oh. Yeah. And then you got also have where, the, where the change in daylight. Uh, this where is just, learn? so this is all compounded information, right? So, um, I, I w watching documentaries, reading different books, um, I, there's, a, there's a wonderful website. Um, I, I, I stopped, um, uh, subscribing to it, but they have, uh, mental health videos 
it's, it's I forget what it's called. It's like it's like mental health society or something like that. But they would have these speakers coming on and talking about um, you know mental health issues from psychiatric meds to suicidal suicidality uh, to depression and anxiety. And so you know just taking notes over various things, and then you just start connecting dots. Oh well, if this is happening, then that happens, and that happens, and that happens. But not not all that information in, in one place. Mm. Um, but there is a very good book, uh, The Neuroscience of Suicidality, that really gave me a strong uh, framework for that. But then also Robert Sapolsky's Behave, which t- to me was um, a game changer in really understanding uh, behavior and mental health. Oh, I have to read that, definitely. Um, Have you read uh, Robert Whitaker's Anatomy of an Epidemic? I have not even heard of that. Oh, wow. Um, Hold on, let me show you the cover. It was absolutely, this is the first book I read when um, I couldn't figure out what was going on with my sister-in-law. I could not uh, it nothing made sense. And if you read this book, he's a journalist, but he used to be the science writer, I think, for the Boston Globe. And he used to, anyway, his his observations. He he goes into unpublished study. His his ability to collect and interpret data is 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 unbelievable. And it, it you, your entire worldview changes after reading this. Um, mostly with regard to the overuse of medication and how medication um, can harm and has the potential to harm, doesn't always harm. That's really important to say. But um, I, I, I implore you to interview him. He is a, in my opinion, should be getting a big award because uh, and he has a website called Mad in America and he invites lots of people on that. And I think you would you'd be really interested in that. Um, Robert Whitaker. I'd, I'd love that. So Lynn, you know, you've talked to and interviewed hundreds of psychiatric patients and consulted with scores of experts across the country about their experiences with psychiatric drugs. If, since we're over-medicating, what have you found works as an alternative or uh should be used in conjunction with medication, right? Because it's not an all or nothing kind of thing. Um, what, 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 are we, what are we missing? What, what are the pieces that need to be added? There are so many different alternatives. Um, there, there are, the problem with pre- presenting one opinion about it is that there's so many and they work differently for different people. Um, I, uh, way up on the top of my list would be things that you've already it, it, uh, talked about, like mindfulness, um, um, exercise, uh, really taking a look at, at your own physical health because your mind is part of the body, um, eating right. Uh, I think um, really monitoring what what if you are on a medication monitoring how what it what it how it feels and what it feels and um any side effects that you might have so i mean i think um therapy is incredible i think i i think you have to find the right therapist and that that as you've mentioned earlier takes time it means like 
seeing five therapists and maybe the sixth or seventh might be the person you click with. And I think um, uh, I read a long time ago, beautifully written book called um, Noonday Demon. And in the Noonday Demon, I think he saw 20 therapists before he landed on one that really helped him. Um, so, and that was about depression, really severe, debilitating depression. And I think, um, uh, again, it's just like our bodies are different physically. The way we interact with a the therapist is different. So um, that's not really a good answer about any one thing, Leo, but those are the things I think you need to look at first, but they're all, then you, there's equestrian therapy. There is, um, you know, being in nature therapy. There's, it goes on and on. So many people have found their own thing. Um, anyway, before you take a drug, you've got to get informed though, on what, uh, you know, exactly what that entails. You know, you, you said something that was very powerful. You said two things that um, I really want to highlight. One is there's not one answer, right? There's not one solution. When we were talking about baking a cake or um, e even in the making of your documentary, it just wasn't you. It wasn't one person who was able to make this documentary happen. It required a team, team effort, different ingredients. And, and, and so we have to have the same approach with our mental health, recognizing that the solution to whatever we're going through, whether we're hearing voices or seeing things or not wanting to get out of bed or wanting to end our lives is not going to, it's not the one, it's not one thing that's going to be the antidote. It's going to be a slew of things. Uh, we're going to have to, uh, 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 you know, launch, a, uh, what did I say? Uh, um, a campaign. We have to launch a campaign, uh, against our, our mental health or for our mental health, whether that's, you know, naming it, like the black dog, um, going to therapy, exercise, all that. And uh, we have to get creative. But you also said we have to find our own thing. You know, exercise in terms of, you know, I, I do yoga. Uh, I, I do TRX. Um, I do some type of HIIT therapy. I do, um, you know, I go swimming. That works for me. For, for my sister, she loves to dance. She takes dance classes. Uh, you know, I, I see people in my neighborhood. They, they walk their dog four or five times a day. Like, you, we... You know, part of our mental health is really exploring the different aspects of it and finding what works for us and what we want to do and what we can stick with. We're going to have to get creative. It's not always going to be in a book or on a podcast. Or there was this one lady I read, um, you know, she had lost her parents and it was grieving, didn't know what to do. So she started a bookmobile and just, you know, just created a, a bookstore in her van and is driving across the country, uh, yeah. selling books. Like you're not going to find like no doctor is going to tell you to do that. Right. Uh, no podcaster is going to tell you to do that. We, we're going to have to get quiet. We're going to have to take the chance of getting quiet, real quiet, get still, sit with ourselves and then hear and then hear what our, our inner guide is telling us sometimes. Um, and so, yeah, I love that you, you brought that up. Like, it, we have to make it our own, and it's going to require a bunch of different things at different times in order to to keep us grounded and, and tethered here to earth. Yeah, I love that. I love that so much, and I think that you're at that's that's such a great response, and it it, it makes me think of um, uh, a family doctor who came to one of our screenings, and we had a 
really intense discussion because we love having community screenings because we bring all stakeholders together and we talk about it. And um, this wonderful doctor said to all of us, and there were some psychiatrists in there, he said, I prescribe these meds more than anybody. And um, I've got to tell you that uh, um, uh, after seeing the film, I, uh, an, an elderly gentleman who was one of my patients, his wife died. He came in and he said, doc, I'm, I'm really depressed. And this doctor said to me, I would have just written him up a script. I just would have given him, you know, a script, an antidepressant. And instead I said, okay, let's think together, just like you did. Let's think together. What small thing in your life could you do that might make you feel better? He didn't say, don't take meds, take meds. He just said, what could you do? Can you think of anything? And he said, yeah, well, there's a group, there's a group of, of, of elderly friends who kind of walk around the neighborhood and um, maybe I'll join them. And so that my friend, the doctor said, yes, do it. And he went and he saw that guy three weeks later and he said, how do you feel? And he said, better, better. So he just simply took a walk with his friends. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, a lot of times when we talk about therapy and group therapy, uh, people think they have to go to like a AA or 12 steps or, or other people who are, uh, you know, also depressed or also grieving. Any group is therapeutic. Whether you join a biker group or a book club or a swim group, just doing things with others, whether you're, you know, Habitat for Humanity, any type of group, social set, that's going to be therapeutic. I mean, as long as, you know, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a cool group and you like the people and nobody is, you know, you're not a threat. I mean, but, um, but gr group anything, you know, take a group cooking class. Like that's going to be therapeutic. Anything that allows you to really connect and bond and get to know each other and share and be vulnerable and where you feel safe, seen, and heard, that's going to be therapeutic. It could be a knitting class, whatever it is. Uh, you know, I, I played uh, flag football, and I love those guys, and we had fun, and I look forward to that. Um, so whatever it is, um, find a group, but it doesn't have to be a mental health group. And because, you know, Lynn, the thing is, we kind of live in a world, especially in our society in America, where it's like, get over it, right? Where we feel like, because we've been grieving for six months or three months, it's too long. We should be past it. Your parents died a year ago. You're still crying. You're like, and, and so that can compound our grief because we go, well, if I'm still grieving over something that happened six months ago or a year ago, something else must be wrong. Right. And then that can send us down a spiral also. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And grief, protracted grief was just added to the recent diagnostic and statistical manual of of medicatable diseases. Um, and I just think that's wrong. I think grieving, there's no one. Someone can grieve a day or they can grieve 10 years. And it, it, it's again, the variation, the variability of how we as human beings process grief cannot be the same so um i absolutely agree with that yeah that's so sad because i remember my dad died i didn't cry for uh, another two years it took me two years before i actually just broke down in tears and cried and i've heard the same from other people and it, unfortunately there there's couples out there who they've lost a child 
And, you know, one spouse is immediately just in tears and the other one is seemingly stoic. Um, and then that causes tension because the other person's not crying. Then one spouse goes, well, you must not care. And then the person's like, I do care. I'm just, I'm just like more concerned about you, your welfare now, cause you're here and I'm thinking about you. So I don't have the, I don't feel like I have the space to grieve, but people don't really communicate that. So then what you find is, is that that spouse ends up crying five or 10 years later. So we have that delayed grief because we are in that, like we're, we're trying to, in that we, we, we fall into a caretaker mode where we want to make sure everybody else is okay with the loss before we can grieve kind of thing. And so, you know, be compassionate to each other. Absolutely. Lynn, uh, it, is there is there anything from the from the documentary or, or from your journey that uh, we haven't discussed, or anything that you really wanted to include in a documentary, but you left on a cutting room floor? Oh, and you know we have that. We have uh, we've had wonderful um, editors who've come in, taken clips that were left on the cutting room floor, and we put them in two to three se minute segments, and they're on our YouTube channel which um, you can find through our website, which is medicatingnormal.com. And these are easily digestible, short things about that, that we couldn't include in the film. You can't include everything in the film, which it's impossible. Um, another great thing is that we have community screenings, which I talked about, we're up to almost 200. And they happen all over the country during COVID. They were, a lot of them were virtual, but they can happen virtual, virtually quite easily where we show the film and then we have different themes. Like there's a, the, a group of veterans might want to talk about one aspect of the film because we have some veterans in the film. Um, a group of parents might want to talk about, you know, medicating children and, and what that's all about. And then we try to different uh, viewpoints on the panels following the film because again we want the audience to feel like they can engage and so we're really excited about the community community screenings and um medication and prescribing has gone so it's 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 even more than it was so it, these are issues that have to be talked about and um we're hoping that this film opens those conversations what is it? Are, are, psych, are these psychiatric companies still paying doctors to prescribe it? Like, what's the what's the motivation for doctors to pay today? Well, it used to be, you know, doctors would be getting a lot of money um, and they'd be flown all over the country and taken to resorts. That sort of overt paying for being a sort of spokesperson has subsided a bit. But for instance, doctors need to attend continuing med in order to keep your license as a doctor you need to go to a continuing medicational medication uh, course where you get credits and these cmes are heavily funded by pharmaceutical money so they've got the sponsors of the cmes um, asking doctors to speak on behalf of a certain drug i mean it's you know that subconsciously that doctor is going to be prescribing that drug it's just not right. And the trials themselves are mostly funded by pharmaceuticals. And so you have the trials, which are supposed to be judging whether a drug is safe or efficacious, being paid for by the same entity that is going to profit from selling it. And that is just 
to me, it's just a conflict of interest that that I don't know why our society allows it. Um, yeah, I, you know, that's the <clears throat> that's the dark side of capitalism, right? Like, uh, you know, when we talk about money and and now I see all these documentaries about psychedelics and MDMA and uh, ketamine and, you know, all these, uh, you know, mind altering hallucinogenic drugs, which uh, that's a bit scary to me also. Um, oh, Leo, they, they are being funded by venture capital firms. Those are big time. The only thing I, and, and I think we just need to study it more. And the only thing I can say is that they're not given on a daily basis the way, or if they are, we need to think about it. But, um, you know, your average prescription of an antidepressant is supposed to be taken every day and in many cases for a lifetime. And so that is a perpetual, ongoing, long-term thing. And I hope that the MDMA, I, th I feel like that that's being used more therapeutically and for, maybe it isn't going to be as invasive, but there's a lot of money behind all that. And we have to be careful. Yeah, we have to be careful. Uh, thank you, Lynn Cunningham, for being here. Last question I want to ask is always, imagine if there's one person uh, listening in who may be on the precipice of wanting to end their life. Before you kill yourself, what would you say to them, Lynn Cunningham? Oh, I would say if I knew them on a certain level, I love you so much. Um, I am here for you. Um, please pause and know that and please don't do it. <laughs> I think I would just try, I would try to connect and talk to them. Um, as simply and compassionately as I could possibly do. Uh, I, I would not want to try to talk them. I, I would take the, whatever pain they're in very, very seriously. I think if someone is in that state and you try to tell them they're not in that state or they shouldn't be in that state, I think that's disrespectful to the pain they're in. So I would say, I love you and I'm here for you and I will do anything I can. Lynn Cunningham, thank you so much. Thank you so much, listeners, for tuning in. Remember, this podcast is not a substitute for you going to get help. Call that 988. That's right, 988. This is three numbers now if you live in the States. Uh, they change it from that 1-800-S-U-I-C-I-D-E to 988. Three numbers. If you're international, if you're in Budapest, or if you're in Shanghai, or if you're in Nairobi. Nairobi? Ni Ni Nairobi, yeah. I was going to say Nairobi, but I think that's a girl I met back in the day. Uh, now, if you live in Nairobi or, uh, or Peru, uh, there are international phone numbers for you to call. You can always go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one -on -one coaching with yours truly, or go to that betterhelp.com forward slash uh, uh, Leo to give you your 10% off your first month's free of therapy. Uh, don't wait. Don't wait until you're drowning. Uh, to learn how to swim. This is why you go, go to therapy now so that when, when things hit the fan, because at some point they do, uh, you'll have somebody already in your corner. It's, it's hard to find someone uh, when you're already uh, in the hole. So please get help, free help, text, chat, whatever. Whatever you do, reach out to somebody uh, and let's get to tomorrow together. Thank you so much, Lynn Cunningham. Thank you so much, Leo.